You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And then you have to evaluate whether they work within a given methodology. What I want to do is start off with some premises about the way in which I understand Hasidic readings, right, the premises they function under. And then I'm, we're going to try and do an example um, of that. And then I hope we'll have time to show that rather than seeing this type of mode of reading as unprecedented, it actually, what I'm going to try and show you is that this type of reading about these psukim, actually, you can find it in the Gemara, you can find it in the Zohar, and it's part of it. You can find it all the way through, and you shouldn't think of this as a radical departure. And then that hopefully that gives us a better way of trying to evaluate what we, what we think of this kind of reading. Okay, so I want to set out um, five principles of um, what I understand as of I, I understand as the principles of Hasidic um, readings of Torah, of Hasidic exegesis. Uh, some of them are shared with many forms of rabbinic exegesis, and some of them are not. Uh, I want to point out, as I frequently want to do, that this is not a question of pshat versus drash, or even a drash versus drush. Every mode of interpretation can be done, I guess I would say, in a very rigorous way, which which is for that method shot and can be done in a less rigorous way, which for that method is for that for that method is um, is drush. Um, right, so pshat and drush are, are distinguishable, I think, usually along the axis of the same kind of interpretation, just how rigorously you engage in it. Um, pshat and drush are technical terms, and which one you assign, right? They they're terms for different modes of. Uh, of exegesis, but what one calls pshat, another could call drash. So I'm not well, I'm less interested in that term, in that for our purposes um, now. Okay, so one. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think necessarily. I think they're often just complete about completely different things. I think they're about completely different things, and it might be that. Hasidus could have, it's just like Chazal, right, seem to have something they call drash, and that might be different than what they call pshat in particular areas, let's say in halachas, for example. So it might be that there's a kind of mode of exegesis that Hasidim would, would call pshat, and a type of exegesis that Hasidim would call drash. But that, right, but they would, each, in each of those, they would distinguish them from drush. That's what I'm claiming. Right, so I, right, so I don't need that category. Okay, great. So here are the categories that I want to set up. The first three, I think, are largely shared with classical drash. And then the fourth, the fourth and the fifth, the fourth one by definition can't be shared with drash. And the fifth is, I think, um, is, I think, specific to Hasidus. So the first one is called omnisignificance. That's a term developed by my teacher, uh, Professor Yaakov Elmanolava Shalom. It's an assumption that every aspect of the text has meaning. There's nothing in the text that is just there because that's how you write, right? In a sense, it's the position of Rabbi Akiva against Rabbi Shmael. It doesn't say it doesn't accept the Brat Torah Adam, and it's a position. Um, I think personally, it's the position of Ramban, for a certain sense, against Ibn Ezra, um, that you write that we simp- that we don't regard Chumash as in the same way that we would regard a text written by human beings. And therefore, pshat in chumash is different, right? If you want to use that term, it's different than pshat in a different book because we can assume different things about the author. What we can assume about God is that every aspect of the text is meaningful, however you construct meaning out of it. Okay, the second uh, is called hyperliteralism. 
Um, Hyperliteralism means that uh, as opposed to in certain uh, medieval schools, we call the Pashtunim. So if you have something that looks off, so you try and explain how this grammatical form is really, uh, really doesn't mean what it seems to mean. It can, you can understand this grammatical form as meaning what is contextually appropriate. Or you can understand this use of an odd word as, as, as relating to the same, to what obviously it means in context. But in this mode of interpretation, because everything in the text is significant, so all your choices about how to convey meaning have to have significance as well. So if the tense is off, you have to explain why the tense, right? Even if you know, quote unquote, what it has to mean, you have to explain why is the, why is the tense off. And often you'll end up saying, well, you know what? That's not what I would have expected. All right, I was, but uh, right, I wouldn't have expected, I wouldn't have expected the future instead of the past, right? And again, we're assuming you're doing this rigorously. Um, but there has to, right? But there must be a reason for it. Right? The third um, category is what I uh, I call deconstruction. Deconstruction is a school of literary criticism, and I'm referring to it in a very specific way. Um, what they mean is what I understand. The way the understanding of deconstruction I'm offering is that the way you construct language is that you when you hear a sound or a series of sounds in context, you think of Lots and lots of different things that that that, that sound could mean. Obviously, most obviously in terms of homonyms, but sometimes what you think it's going to mean changes because of the next syllable. Sometimes what you think it's going to mean change right means be, that changes because you mishear, you didn't realize right, you heard a letter close to it, but it turns out that sounds like it. But then you realize from the next letter that it's not, or the next syllable that it's not really the thing you heard. So deconstruction argues that because the way your brain constructs meaning is not by building up often, but often by pruning, you start off with a vast array of meanings, and then you end up, right, what you, and you end up doing is trying to narrow those down. Um, but really, a clever author, a clever human author, uh, takes advantage of your misunderstandings. The most obvious way is in what we call puns, right? Puns are built on your, on your misunderstanding of what you heard until all of a sudden you realize. Um, but a really clever author uses puns and your misunderstanding contributes to meaning. And then you plug that into Chazal, and you assume that a perfect author takes advantage of all the meanings, including all the misreadings that would occur to you on the way. Right? So every possible interpretation has meaning, even the ones which turn out not to be the primary meaning. Sometimes I try and use a metaphor also deeply outside my depth, which is talking about music and harmonies. And right, and how you right, and um, right, and all the all the ancillary notes you hear of, right, which are vibrating at different frequencies as opposed to the main frequency. So, um, right, so this is a, a a wild extension of omniscient significance. It's not only that what the final that every element of the final text is meaningful, but even all the things you think of on the way to determining the um, the the um, the first level meaning of the final text. Okay, those I think are largely um, common to all Midrash um, at different levels. And, you know, and again, it can be done well, it can be done badly, it can be done rigorously, it can be done loosely. Um, and it's a problem because we're not God, so we can't, right? So often our attempts to provide the meaning of things that are less rooted in the text will just be bad interpretations. And somehow you have to say this and still think that not everything you think is necessarily uh, part of the text in any way at all. That's a challenging theolog theological question. Um, yeah, Ruf Cook would probably go to the extreme and say, no, somehow even the even the totally mistaken interpretations you make must somehow be intended by the author. 
and then you get into the same issue as you always do with how anything can happen, um, you know, how there can be any any free will in the world, how you can ever make mistakes. But for now, we'll 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 leave that challenge out. Okay, now the fourth element, which by definition really can't be there in Midrash, although their own conception, right? If we were talking about it in Midrash, we'd say something like Torah Shabbat, but in Hasidic Jesus, you're right, you're assuming the truth of a right that it's perfectly legitimate to build on a body of prior interpretations. You don't have to justify those interpretations, you can just assume them. Um, or claim or, or factual claims, all sorts of things. Right? And basically that's Rashi very specifically in terms of what the text means. And Chazal generally for your vision, right, for what's true in the world. Right? All those things are given. You don't have to start from first from first principles. Um, and the fifth principle, right, which is really unique, I think, to um, to Hasidus, is what I would claim is a, is a belief that ultimately every pasuk in the Torah is about the relationship is directly about the relationship between God and human beings and how to improve it. That's what we call we call that devekut. Right? It's even texts that appear to be about something else entirely in this system of interpretation, which again you can claim is. You can think of it as their pshat. You can think of it as their drash. You can think of it as one of any of. You can think of it as one as one of you know as coexisting with sod, right? Because sod is a completely different level of interpretation, um, kind of interpretation. I wouldn't say level, but that's a given, right? So if you if you read the text, and this text doesn't seem to say anything about the experience of relating to God, then there's an aspect of the text that you're that we assume you're missing. Okay, that's my broad introduction. Are there questions uh, still about that? I think it's all of it. I think it's using the tools of Midrash, which is freeing, but not. Um, yeah, I think that there are lots of things that have um, that create freedom, but it doesn't mean that there that there are no rules. Uh, you know, like you can talk in the debate about blank verse, right? Robert Frost claimed that writing writing blank writing blank verse was like playing tennis without a net. Uh, right, but but you know, but most people who write blank, you right, who write you know, blank verse think that there are rules. They're just much more complex rules, which there which you know, give you a lot more freedom than writing rhyming couplets. Um, right, or, right, you have a lot more freedom in blank verse than you have in writing sonnets in it. Right, and there's, there's advantages, disadvantages to that, but there's still rules. Um, I think, and I like, I think there are rules in midrash. You know. Which you can loosen, to, you know, if you're if you're doing drush. But if you want to do midrash, I think there are rules. But I think Hasidus really adds, a is that it's hundreds of years later, and it assumes that you can build on the stuff in the past, and to some extent, it thinks you can build on the stuff of the past. As it doesn't care whether the stuff in the past is drush or drush, so that opens up a lot. And uh, but I think the key thing is this assumption that what the text is really about. Is what I'm calling dvekus. It's really about the relationship between God and human beings, and directly, right? Not about right. Not about you know, it. might look like it's about a specific mitzvah. It might look like it's about a historical event, but it's really directly about that. 
Okay, that's what I think. But again, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and instantiate that here, but I am, I am anything but an exegesis. Um, so, you know, I guess if, you know, if Ariel Mays is listening to this, I might get a, you know, I don't imagine he is. I imagine, you know, I might get some very strong corrective emails <laughs> about this at some point soon, but see if it, see if it's productive for you, right? You know, if I set it out, see if that, if that helps you understand something that, um, that you might not have gotten about it before. Okay, so I want to give uh, I want to give two examples uh, about the way in which these assumptions will play out in the text we're reading to start with, and then we're going to do examples. Uh, so one one example is right. So here we're here at the very beginning of 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 Parshas Truma, and you all know what Parshas Truma is about, right? We're going to build the Mishkan. In order to build the Mishkan, we're going to get stuff, right? And that's what Truma means, right? Truma means a stuff, right? Stuff that is selected from other stuff. Right, so we have all sorts of instructions about how, right, about how to, about how to, right, about how to, um, how to get the truma, what the truma is. The truma, in the end, is right, is uh, intended to build something called a mikdash. Um, although, right, that mikdash is also referred to as the mishkan here. And then we have a very interesting phrase at the end: v'chein ta'asu. So, what is v'chein ta'asu? mean right probably the vi right if you said everything that everything is the way i show you in the mountain the form of the mishkan and the form of the kelim right as as it is so you should do it but the chain tasu is a right is a little bit odd um right so you can say oh the vav right the vav, right the vav, we can find ways to explain the vote but it's odd and it's also redundant because we already said the right so this is could just be Vasuli Mikdash, Kichola Sharani Mared Klabahar, Etavnir Shkanve Etavnikol Kelav. So the Chain Tasu adds nothing. So it's odd and it's extra. Um, okay, so I want to point out two things about the Chain Tasu uh, before right, one is, and I see that I accidentally, I think I put this thing down the line. No, I didn't. Okay, it's right here, right? So there's another place in, um, in Chumash. We have an odd version of the verb aso at the end of a section, and that is in the end, right? In the beginning of Perak Bereshit Bet, we're talking about Shabbat. It's right. They verily came in Yom Shviv by Kedesh Aso, Kivos Shabbat Bekom Lachto Asher Baralokim La Aso. Right. So you all know, right, that everybody has to figure out what does it mean La Aso. Right. God didn't. Right. It could could be should just be Mikom Lachto Asher Asa, or Mikom Lachto Asher Baralokim. So that word La Aso. At the end is right is taken classically already as being right as being genuinely in the future tense, right? That God makes the world in some way, either that it continues making, or that it continues to be made. So now, if you have that as a model already, and you look at the chain to asu, look here is not exactly the same the same tense, but it's the same verb, and it's thrown in as a seeming end, right? As something at the end. Um, and it's in the wrong tense, which can also be understood in some way as a future. So that gives you an inclination that maybe that maybe just like this law, so it somehow it changes our whole understanding of what is being built here. So to this tasu changes the whole meaning of what is built here. And then if you think, oh my goodness, the Mishkan is supposed to be right, Right, the Mishkan is parallel to the world that we right and shot right. That's how why the Malacha of Shabbos is connected to the Malachos of the Mishkan. 
So not only are, do we have the, the linguistic connection, structural connection of an odd verb to us, uh, of a version of Asa at the end, we even have a thematic connection. So right now I'm just, right now I'm just, right now I'm just, um, right, reading in a particular way. If we, we go on that way, we might notice also that there's something else here, which is right, really this verse should read, Asuli Mikdash, and then messes it up, right? They'll make me a mikdash, and I'll dwell among them. I'm not going to dwell among them the way I'm showing you in the mountain, right? This is a totally extraneous. Then we notice, right, that, uh, right, that they're all that they're all sorts of places along here, right? But mostly which function about tichu et trumati, right? These these phrases are also completely grammatically extra, by the way, just like a sherasa is extra um, in brachus, and that might create an idea that. That there's something else going on that is connected with the words tikhu, shumati, and God dwelling among us. All right, so that's one way in which, again, I'm not doing right. You can't accuse me of doing drush yet because I'm not in any way saying anything content-wise yet. I'm just reading so far, and I'm and just reading and saying what are the things I want to interpret. I want to interpret this last v'chein Asu. I want to interpret it in light of Bracious. I want to. I think that that probably means that there's something parallel between the Mishkan. And creation going on, the Mishkan and creation going on here, even though that wasn't obvious, and that it might be connected to these, right, to these keywords. Okay, then there's one other opportunity, which is what does the word Teruma mean? So we know that the word Teruma means, right, from, right, you know, kind of agricultural type. It means that you lift something out of something else, right? That's what the verb Teruma means. But literally, right, it means you lift. And if you're thinking about that everything has to be about Tveikus, so then every time you see the word Truma, you're going to assume that we're talking about Romamus, which is an experience, right, an experience of the exaltation of God. Um, now, you might say, okay, but how are you going to get Vikuli to connect to that? Well, okay, that's my job, but I know that the word Lakach is really important here. And I know that there are certain parallels, um, certain, I, mean, I know there are certain problems that if I think about this as being about the way in which human beings relate to God become very important. So I noticed that it says vikulitruma, right, which sounds like it's voluntary. And then it says tikhuatrumati, which sounds like it's involuntary. And it goes much stronger. It says asher tikhu meitam. So this, right, everybody who just deals with it on the level of what happened when Bnei Yisrael were asked, uh, right, or when, or when God told Moshe that he should speak to Bnei Yisrael and as a result, they would, as a result, they would, um, they would bring you truma, right? So everybody has to try and figure it out. So to what extent was it voluntary? And to what extent was, oh, this is a typo, to what extent is it, um, to what extent is it, um, right, is it involuntary? Um, right, that, there's a whole issue with the burial B'nai Israel. What are you supposed to say to them? It says, the burial shall be truma. trumah. Are you supposed to tell them to bring the truma? So there's an ambiguity about whether we're dealing with something that is free-willed or imposed. And that also, right, so that, if you think that that's what a text is really supposed to be about, it's supposed to be whether our relationship to God is the function of command or the function of, right, or, the, or, a, or a voluntary free will commitment, so then these can become, um, become enormously rich, and especially if I think that Truma must refer in some way, uh, some way to Romamus. Okay, and then I'm also going to have to, you know, also try and figure out what the word is, kol ish means here, right? Who are the kol ish? Um, right, that'll also offer me opportunities. Okay, so I'm just, right, these are, this is just a, um, this is just a, um, 
the beginning of a survey of um, right of what if I read this way right it has nothing to do with um, nothing to do with 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 what I want it to mean but just if I if I read if I read if I read this way then um, right then I have all these opportunities right respond to Miriam's question right so I don't want to think of free will and commandedness as binary I just I think their intention right how we relate to them and if you think that and in some way you have to think about that question right to even if you don't think of the binary, you have to think about, you know, what what element of voluntary, what elements of voluntariness are there, I guess, uh, as opposed to compulsion. I'm not sure how you would do it without, how you explain a hakira without going through the binary, but it doesn't mean that the world is binary and there are only two choices. It could be that they're melded in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, okay, so that's what I want to claim is, right, that's, that's the a beginning of a field of play, and I hope you get sort of a sense of that if you're, coming to this text as a Hasidic reader. So it's not that I'm looking for how can I say this? It's this is this is what the the things in the text I have to interpret are, just like if I've been Ibn Ezra, I have to deal with certain grammatical structures and certain semantic structures and I'll have certain conceptions about how they fit together. Okay. So I want to do with you briefly um, are um, three sections of the Kedushas Levi, which is a very uh, right, is the the third generation of Hasidic leaders after the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid, um, and I, I want to just do right three ways in which he reads the op uh, he reads the opening, and right we're not going to be able to do them I think and I don't think I'm going to read them in, um, entirely but we'll at least read key sections, and you'll see what he's doing consistently even though all his interpretations are different, uh, and as in Midrash Agada, there's nothing in uh, Hasidic exegesis allows multiple conflicting meaning, meanings to exist simultaneously. So these readings don't all have to be compatible with each other, and they may read the text in different ways. And I hope we'll have time just to begin to show not just right, how, right, what sorts of readings are being done as opposed to just the content. Okay, so here's number one. The first question he asks is, it says here by Deber Hashem Moshe Lemur. Okay, so good, right? It says everywhere Deber Hashem Moshe Lemur. But for him, what it says is, this is the first time that after the experience of the revelation that God says these words to, Mo to Moshe, speak to B'nai Israel, And so he must have a reason for telling Moshe now, you have to speak to B'nai Israel. It can't just be that it came out. You know, I haven't had anything to say before. Now it's right now. It's um, now I have something to say to you. It must be telling me something. Uh, and again, it must be telling me something about the experience of relating to God. Um, that right now God has to tell Moshe, you have to speak to B'nai Israel, maybe because otherwise Moshe wouldn't. So here's how he plays it out. There's a Gemara which says that if you saw Rish Lakir spending time with somebody, when they saw Rish Lakir spending time with somebody, they knew that person was utterly trustworthy. They would, you know, they would do business with that person without having any written record. So why is that? So he says, okay, now we have an assumption that the tzaddik, now we're in a in a, a world where tzaddikim are somewhat different kinds of human beings, um, tzaddikim have to be very careful when they speak with the masses because when a person speaks with common people, so the act of speaking with other people who are not like you, the tzaddik, can break your connection with God. You can be focused on the person in a way that diminishes your connection to God. Unless, 
you find the kind of person who is exalted by speaking with you, right? So as opposed to you're being brought down by speaking with them, they'll be brought up by speaking with you, right? So tzaddikim shouldn't speak with people who will bring them down. They should only speak with people who will bring them up, right? And this is obviously you know, a broad lesson, right? Everybody should speak with people who will cause them to intensify the relationship with God as opposed to cause them to attenuate it. Okay, right? But if you right, if you bring the other person up, so then you're accomplishing something, right? You're changing the world um, by bringing that person into greater Kedusha. So here's the thing. Rish Lakish, of course, was a tzaddik. So he would only, so, and, he was, and he was very careful about this. He would only talk to people who would be exalted by speaking with him. So if you spoke with some, so if he spoke with somebody, that must be a really good person. Okay, fine. Now, right, so now, 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 Chrissy, so why is this story here? So now, when after Matan Torah, the Jews sin uh, with the eagle. Now, this is also making assumptions, in, right, about other issues, that making assumptions of, as to when this story takes place, right, even though it's Parshas Truma and the eagle only happens in Kisisa, he assumes that it's located after after Kisisa. That ties into us, you know, accepting a certain tradition. Um, right, so the Jews lose their kedusha. Right, so they lose. It's a very much more complicated theological notion that there's a moment where the Chet Nachash disappears at Sinai and then it re, it's recreated by the eagle, which we don't need to get into now. So now Moshe, who is not part of the Chet Eagle, is afraid to talk with the Jews, and therefore God has to tell him, "Daber el bnei Israel, don't worry. If you speak to bnei Israel." The result of your speaking of Bnei Yisrael will not be your losing yourself. The result will be you will bring them up. Okay, so now just the words, the Beryl Bnei Yisrael, the Beryl Bnei Yisrael immediately gets you to a conversation about the right the psychology of Dvekus, right? To what extent, um, right? To what extent do you, um, do you right? Do you, does that ha- does that happen or not? And he says the Beryl Bnei Yisrael v'ikhuli truma. So that's going to mean, right? Yichuli truma is that you're right. They will reach the level, right? They will reach the level of Romus, right? They will they will bring Romus to me if you speak to them, right? So there's one example. Okay, second um, second example. He says everybody is obligated to serve God with both thoughts and deeds, um, right? Because through right because through your thoughts, right through your intentions and your thoughts. Then you bring um, you bring the, you bring the shechina out of the dust, and by actions you bring yourself up. Okay, so this is a right uh, right thoughts and intentions are designed in some way, whatever that means, to um, right to to redeem right to redeem the aspects of divinity in the world, and actions are intended to redeem right to redeem yourself. She's romaine. There's that word again, and therefore it says libo. So that's a description of your internal psychology, right? That you are volunteering. So that's talking about thoughts. And then it says, right? What does that mean? If you, right, if you, if you, if you, if your thoughts are, right, are proper, are, are volunteered towards God, then so now remember the word Rome is always going to mean Romus. So trumati is the exaltation of God. So through Yidvenali, both through your volunteerism, right, you raise God, right? Trumati. But but then there are ways in which you bring yourself up, right? This is not trumati, 
right? And that involves deeds, and he thinks that, right? He thinks that this is a place where maybe it doesn't quite function. Uh, maybe it gets into the drushas as opposed to the drash realm, but you have to see whether he interprets this consistently. Right? He claims that the materials, gold, silver, and copper, are all references to deeds, and so this entire paragraph is right is talking about the way in which different aspects of religious life contribute respectively to the exaltation of God or the of God in such a way that he becomes present in the world or the exaltation of human beings so that they become more um, more in relationship to the God who exists in the world. Okay, that's number two. Here's number three. Um, ta'asu, right? So Rashi says, ta'asu right? So Rashi takes ta'asu, uh, as meaning, in fact, refers to the future. You should do, the, just like you're doing this now, you should do this for all future generations. But Tosfut asks, hang on a sec, actually, the dimensions of the Mishkan are not the same as the dimensions of the Beit HaMikdash. Remember, we had both the word Mikdash and Mishkan in the text. So how can Rashi say, the Chain Ta'asula Dorot, that this is an instruction to do everything the same way uh, for future generations, when in fact, the the uh, the uh, materials of the Mishkan, the the the, the, the Stuff in the Mishkan is not made the same way for all generations because eventually we move from Mishkan to Mikdash and everything changes. However, he's right, and the Rabbah asks the same question. He says, But according to what we've said above, this is all fine. Because what does the Pasuk mean? Chazal say that no two prophets have the same literary style. Right, everybody has everybody um, right. All Navian prophesy in accordance with their own subjective capacities, um, right? And the way in which they serve God, that's the way in which they right in which they, their prophetic visions appear to them, right? So there's not prophetic visions are not objective visions. Prophetic visions are experiences every human being has in accordance with their own. Uh, where every prophet has in accordance with their own subjective relationship to God. Okay, so now, what does the Pasuk mean? Just like, just like the no Navi is alike, so too, Ratzalamar, Bechol Dorvador, in every generation, right, just, right, when you try to build whatever the temple, the, the sanctum of that day is, yeah Asiyah, you should always build it, right? Not in accordance with the way in which Moshe Rabbeinu saw it on the mountain, and not in accordance with the way the Jews saw it on the mountain at that time. Everybody has to build it the way that they see it, right? So by connecting it, right, you have to build the way in which it was seen on the mountain, right? The message doesn't mean always build it the same way. It means the opposite. It means you always have to build it in accordance with the way in which God appears to you at this moment, right? In accordance with the way in which you have the prophetic experience of the way in which the Mishkan should be. And so Shlomo did it his way, and Moshe did it his way, and the Rabban is no problem because, in fact, the Chen Darot means everybody has to do it in their own way, not that everybody has to do it in the... Um, in the in the uh, in the same way. Um, okay, right. As you try another way of framing it is right. Kain relates grammatically. He says to kol asher ani mareh, 
just like you now, you can't change anything from what I am showing you, Moshe, on the mountain. So too, in the future generations, whatever they are shown on the way by the way of the prophets, that's the um, right. That's what that's the way in which you have to do it then. Right. So the Kedusha Levi has three lessons right derived from three aspects of the Pesukim. One is uh, right. One is that the barrel the barrel B'nai Israel is God's instruction to Moshe that by speaking with the Jewish people he should have confidence right that because the because of the Jewish people that the result of his speaking with them is going to lift him up and not and right it's going to lift them up and not bring him down and that has to be you know that has to be a model for people generally on the one hand you have to be very cautious on the other hand you have to have a very strong bias towards believing that um right that talking with your fellow jews is going to lift you up uh, the second thing is to understand the different purposes of religious thought and religious action and that's built of the of the tension between is it yidvenu libo and trumati or is it kikume itam and just truma? Um, and then the last thing is on the chen ta'asu, which he uses to utterly reverse what seems to be the obvious meaning of the of the pasuk, because the pasuk in fact means on the literal level that on the first level that right now everybody has to build the kalim exactly the way they see them, but the chen ta'asu transforms that not meaning. And do it the, as I just told you. Do it exactly the way you see. Instead, it's a statement about the future that you always have to do it exactly the way you see, and not the way that uh, not the way that it was seen in the past. Now, this obviously you know, we have to contextualize the have to contextualize the vort, right? Because that can lead to a complete uh, you know complete re- 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 redoing of the whole system. How do you know that right, you have to know that it's in fact a, a vision of prophecy and not just whatever you want to do? Well, but uh, right, yeah. You know, so there are there are lots of radical things you get out of this, and I don't think they would be correct. But I think this shows you something about the way he's reading, um, about the way he's reading. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Right. I agree with Maria. But, you know, as I say, there's a tension because on the one hand, Rish Lakish was special because he wouldn't talk to any Jews, so it's obvious that not ever, that. Some people can talk to some fellow Jews and get brought down because Rish Lakish wouldn't talk to all the fellow Jews. On the other hand, even Moshe Rabbeinu, you would think, would be the most at risk because he of being brought down from his unique connection to God by talking to people. So there's a value in knowing that God told Moshe Rabbeinu, no, 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 right? The way, right? Your religious responsibility is not to maintain is right. You can't feel that way that right. You can't talk to you can't talk to anybody because. That will just break your connection. That's right. That's not true, and you have to have confidence that sometimes you're talking to them will raise them up. Um, okay, again, right? We're reading, you know, one partial. You have to you have to read fifty-two partials, and you know, we can have a, a better sense of how he balances all the um, how he balances all these tensions. Because in each of these places, it's you know, it should be clear he's taking uh, he's taking one aspect of uh, right of of something that where there's truth to there's a certain amount of truth to both sides. And my focus, you can find, I hope you find the, uh, I hope you find what he says itself um, challenging, at least, um, if not edifying or inspiring, which it would be great if you found it that way, too. Uh, but right, I hope you also just get, like, this is a mode of reading, right? He's not, he's not just, um, he's not just imposing what he wants to say on the text. This is a mode of reading. And like every mode of reading, you know, it, it you're more likely to come up with results you agree with than results you disagree with if you care about the text. 
Um, but it's not, I think, uh, anarchic or even um, necessarily unrigorous. I think a lot of it can be done uh, based on based on rigorous readings. Okay, that's the end of the explicitly Hasidic uh, texts we're doing. Uh, if there are questions about that now, um, you can ask them now or we'll go on. Sure. Um, I think they wouldn't agree with you that Rashi doesn't agree with them. I think that, you know, I'd say the extreme version of this is that the Tolos Yaakov Yosef, who's also that, that period, um, writes many of his Kabbalistic essays, uh, at least some of his Kabbalistic essays, I think it's quite a few, uh, as interpretations of the Marnivukan. So you would tell me, but how can you do that, right? The Rama obviously wasn't a Kabbalist. That's an assumption to you, right? Which, we can, you know, which I think is true, although we, you know, it's more complicated when you talk about um, various you know, certain kinds of Neoplatonism. So that's a great question for you. It's not a question for him because he assumed the Rambam was a Kabbalist. Now, you could tell me that you don't find that one of the re a basis you could find for not agreeing with this whole mode of interpretation is that it assumes that the Ram was a Kabbalist, and you think that's false, and therefore that's a strike for you against the whole methodology that it assumes something which you think is just false. That's fair. That I think is fair. I, I don't think they would agree with you that Rashi didn't think this way. I think they would have. I think they would largely have have argued that Rashi did think this way. You just have to interpret Rashi properly. I think you could have that, or it could be that they would say, you know what, Rashi does both Pshat and Drash in his own world, and that's when he does Pshat, and we, right, but he would agree that what we're doing is the proper thing called Drash. That's also possible. I don't think they're consistent about that, but I'm not an expert. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So now we're going to go into Chazal, and what I hope I'll show is that if I hadn't labeled everything, that what we call Hasidic interpretation wouldn't, you know, would fit in, right? That's what that's what that's, that's a strong thesis with a whole range of different kinds of traditional inter interpretations that are outside the realm of Hasidut, and that maybe what Hasidut is just doing is intensifying streams that are right, that are clearly exist all the way through. So, but you'll make up your own mind as to what at what level these interpretations come in. So here's the Mechilta. Mechilta asks the question: How do you know that there wasn't a single Jew, right? Right, so you know that there's a a basic puzzle, right? That Moshe picks up the Mishkan, but the 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 pieces of the Mishkan are very, very, very heavy. So you can work in the Midrashi tradition that Moshe Rabbeinu is huge, right? The Og Melach Abashan, the Og Melach Abashan, I got it to 
um, or you can, right, you, or you can say that, you know, that Moshe was assisted by a very, very large group of people, or that he understood levers, um, but it's a basic problem how the Mishkan gets picked up because it's very, very heavy. And the Hilda here goes to an extreme and says, how do you know that there wasn't a single Jew who couldn't pick up the old moid and all its things? Now, maybe it just meant that every Jew has a port to play. Right? So the answer, but the, the pasuk they quote is, Me'et kol from every ish, we're not, not going to for now get to what the, what who's excluded by ish. Uh, let's assume for now it just means everyone. If we have time at the end, we can show how some people think kol ish means to include women and some people think it means to exclude women. Um, so the um, right, there's nobody among the Jewish people who right who um, that that not in this in this interpretation in in a in a, in a first level interpretation that you know we were just trying to figure out what actually happened then um, right so the answer is no kolish means that every Jew is competent. Shmos Rabbah, quoting the same that right so now we move from from sort of midrash halacha although it includes a lot of agada to, to Shmos Rabbah, which is explicitly midrash agada and here it's there's no ambiguity. When God told Moshe about the Mishkan, so Moshe said to him, Can the Jewish people collectively actually do all this work? Right? Not only can they do it collectively, every individual Jew is capable of building the entire Mishkan. Right, so we've moved from the Michilta was talking about to stand up the Mishkan. Um, here we're talking about right, actually making all the parts of the Mishkan, I think. And here it's explicit. It's not that every Jew has a role to play, but that every Jew individually is capable of constructing the entire Mishkan. Okay, so now we go to the Kedah Yitzchak. The Kedah Yitzchak, Rav Yitzchak Arama, is a philosophic commentary, right? You know, a Maimonidian rationalist, you want to call him that. Um, Okay, so what is going on in the Mishkan? It says, They're shown the structure of the entirety of the world. And the way in which God directs the world. So how are the Jews shown the whole construction of the world and God's, and God's um, management of the world? Because right through the Mishkan, right? Again, this is a given the Mishkan is a literal microcosm, but now let's watch. Asher kol ish shalem, in which every person, Asher Yidvenu Libo, who is, right, who is properly inspired um, by in their own heart, Yachola Soto, Bisiklo Virayone Libo, every Jew can build the, the Mishkan within their intellect and the thoughts of their heart. Atel Pishle Yachola Hotzibifo El Bechamarim. Even though every Jew is right, not, not every Jew is capable of building the physical Mishkan, but every Jew is capable of understanding the Mishkan, and by and understanding the Mishkan will in will cause you to build a Mishkan in your mind. Right, this is where you end up. You eventually taking a little bit Mishkan Ebed, right? Uh, right. So the Akedah Yitzchak thinks that the shot of this story, whatever the word shot, right? I mean, the meaning of the story is talking about right. Even though on the surface it's talking about building a, a physical Mishkan, but if you understand what's happening, it's really telling you. It's really telling you um, how to understand the entire world. And if you really understand the entire world and God's place in the world, then you'll end up building a Mishkan within yourself. 
right? And this is a reading of Yasuli Mikdash, they'll make a Mikdash for me. Bishokhanti Bisokham. So don't read Bishokhanti Bisokham as I will dwell amongst the Jewish people. It means literally, I will dwell among them. Right? And what's his proof of it? His proof of it, right, his proof of it is exactly our Midrash. Right, Because otherwise, it's really, really hard to understand what God is saying. Right? So I guess, at least I think we get that philosophers can understand Chazal in roughly the same way as Chazidim, because the philosophers also believe that ultimately the Torah is about the relationship between human beings and God, even if they understand that perhaps slightly differently, even though Chassidim might not agree that they understand them, uh, they understand them uh, very differently. So, right, I think that Kedis Yusuf, what Kedis Yusuf says here, I would contend, is something that you would be perfectly, would look perfectly comfortable in the context of the Kedishas Levis we started reading. It's the same kind of an uh, it's the same kind of interpretation, even going down to right the shachanti b'socham as being hyperliteral, right? I will dwell right, literally, uh, literally within them, and the ekul isha shirivanu has to be talking about an internal state, right? It's almost, it's almost exactly the same moves. Okay, so now I want to show it which, right? How does this interpretation play out? So now we're going to go to the Sam Sofer. Um, the Sam Sofer himself is going to be built off the Zohar. That um, that we'll see. So Sam Sofer says, "Hikdim Shabbat Lechet Hamishkan in Parsha VaYakel." It talks about Shabbos before the Mishkan, but what I, uh, my motion tells it, but I could have brought Shabbos Achar Lechet Hamishkan in Parsha Kisisa. There's a contradiction as to whether the Jew, wait, when when God tells Moshe to tell the Jews, he talks about Shabbos before the Mishkan, but when when Moshe actually tells the Jews, he talks about uh, sorry, God talks about the Mishkan before uh, before Shabbat. And Moshe talks about Shabbat before the Mishkan. How do we answer that? Well, the Zohar tells you something. The Zohar says the following. Before Diego, Amara Kodesh Baruch Hu Parsha Truma, Me'et Kol Isha Shri Ven Libo. So before the Ego happens, and we're now understanding that Parsha Truma, right, as opposed to Kedushas Levi's interpretation, that Parsha Truma takes place before the, uh, right, before the Ego, right, this is my focus between Rashi and the Ramban, um, that right that before the Egel, God intended the Truma, means he intended the Mishkan to be built out of Kol Ish, and Kol Ish means even the Erev Rav. And so the right, so the right, so the right, so the relationship of the Jewish people to the Mishkan. Changes and the way it changes is that before the Egil, the Erev Rav are supposed to be part of the construction of the Mishkan, and after the Erev Rav, after the Egil, the Erev Rav are no longer supposed to be part of the uh, of the construction of the um, of the of the Mishkan. So what he says is that's why. So when God talks to Moshe, which is before the Egil, so God puts the Mishkan uh, before before Shabbos because. The Mishkan and the Shabbos and Shabbos are all shared by all Jews. But when Moshe, by the time Moshe comes, it's after the Ego, and at that point, the Erev Rav are still obligated in Shabbos, but they're no longer part of the construction of the Mishkan. Okay, so that, that has all sorts of radical implications, but you can see how, again, 
we're taking right uh, we're take we're taking a um, we're taking the parsha and we're we're, we're um, building we're building universes about relationship to God out of this, not just about the construction of the Mishkan. And if you take a look, right, so the um, this doesn't actually relate to the um, relate to the thing we saw earlier. But it did, but if it does, I don't um, I don't know. Okay, so just the um, we probably don't have to do the do this in depth, but the but the 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 Chassam Sofer is in fact quoting the quoting the quoting the Zohar accurately that there is a radical shift uh, between right between the Parshas Truma and the the Mishkan of Parshas Truma and the Mishkan of Parshas Vayakhel, which he the Chassam Sofer goes on right to embed in the in the relationship of Shabbos, and the phrase Kol Ish um, right really means specifically to include even we might call the marginal. Right, the marginal Jews, and then after the angle that changes. So you can like this work, uh, or not like this work, but once again, what we're doing is we're reading a parsha that seems to be about the Mishkan, but really it's telling you something much more powerful about the relationship between the Jewish people and God. Though we may or may not like the, uh, may not like the, like the, like the way in which it expresses it, that, you know, it depends on what you, what you think happens to Igla, the Eirav, and where we are among the Jews, and whether you think this is talking about literal people or talking about aspects of people, right? That's, that is not something that I feel confident to um, to talk about, um, right? So, right. So he actually understands Parshas Vayakhel as Moshe as the, the point where Moshe comes and separates the Erev Rav um, from the Jews, which is an astonishing claim. Okay, um, but here are other interpretations of um, of Meit Kol Ish, right? So one interpretation of Meit Kol Ish is the Meit Kol Ish meant the Erev Rav, but it actually doesn't last. Rasaka Kohen Milublin, who is sort of this interesting figure because he comes from, uh, right, he, he comes from Chassidus, but he has lots of influence. Right, he's, he's, right, his influence on the Nesiv and his influence on Rukuk, right? So he has all sorts of, uh, and on the Yishmaser, right? Rasaka is a is a wildly influential and, and wildly original figure, um, about whom I can say the only I tried to teach his material once, and I because I asked in, in SBM many years ago. I told the students that I would teach whatever text they wanted. Uh, even if I knew nothing about it, it would be fun to teach it call you said as a Rosh Hashiva as opposed to as a scholar. And they picked uh, and it took me you know, many, many hours to try and teach the first page. You know, just to understand the first page, but I won't teach it. And then uh, Professor Brill came in and essentially um, the book I was teaching was not the same book he was teaching, so maybe it was all wrong. So I'll try again, Rosetta, with the proviso that I don't know anything about Rosetta. Uh, Professor Elman has a, a very, very long article about Rosetta, which I didn't understand, so it's not going to help you either. Here's what he says. the top in Israel for God to live amongst Israel, right? To shachanti betocham, tzarich meit kolish shivgaber al Yisro. That right means he requires every person to overcome their right their Yisra. Which he thinks is a fulfillment of Yira. Right? And when you overcome it, then you you overcome your Yetzer through Yira, which is an element of right, an element of compulsion. Then you reach the level of freedom in Ava, because that's the way human beings work, right? That's the human beings work by um, you go from Yira from Yira through Ava. So he again reads the whole thing as God wants something, not stuff from people. 
Right? What God wants from people is to get to the stage of Asher Yidvenu Libo. Um, okay. Um, now the, the Orachayim, uh, however, has a completely different interpretation of Me'it Kol Ish. Right? He says Me'it Kol Ish is intended to include um, people who are ordinarily not free to give Zaka entirely freely. Um, in his interpretation here, he says the three people he has are orphans whose, whose stuff is in trust, Chanem, whose, right, whose, whose stuff is uh, under control of their parents, and women who married women at that point who were not assumed to be free to donate uh, joint, joint, donate joint assets without, without approval of their husbands, at least not in large amounts. Um, but there are high interesting, right, there are, in his commentary in Shemot, he, um, his commentary in Shemot, he introduces a third category, which is spendthrifts, right, people who are excessively generous, uh, generous, but nearly, uh, he tells a you know, story where there was a certain man, um, when he, when the Gavayi Saka saw him coming, they would run and hide, because he couldn't help but give them everything he had, and he would start his family. So the Gavayi Saka would make sure they weren't around for him to, uh, right, for him to give away their stuff. Zerachayim says that Kol Ish is intended to include everybody whom you would ordinarily, uh, who would ordinarily not accept large amounts of charity from. This is the one state, the one place where you allowed people to be as generous as they wanted. The Meshach Chachma reads it in exactly, uh, in exactly the reverse way. Uh, okay, now if you were, um, if you were uh, reading reading the um, the Arachayim in a Hasidic key, so then you're right. We would try and figure like, why is it here? That um, that volunt- that we allow volunteerism to to go to excess, even though ordinarily uh, in other aspects in other aspects of religious life we don't allow we don't allow people to right to let their volunteerism um, get out of control right and we require them to live right to live, to live within bounds right so that would be uh, that would be that would be uh, the way to read okay so to sum up because um, I want to say I want to think that that. You can find that I think Hasidic interpretation takes within those assumptions can be seen as a consistent mode. One of the ways in which you can see that is if I gave you these, if I gave a group of different people those rules, would they roughly arrive at the same kinds of interpretations? I tried to show that that the that the way reading Parshas Truma as a, as being fundamentally about the way in which Jews ought to relate to God. And not about the building of a building is something that you might be able to find in Chazal that philosophers understood Chazal as saying the same kind of thing, and um, I think you can see that um, other people um, right can can read other aspects of the right, that, that it's not a bad assumption at all to say that what must be going on in in the part of the Mishkan. Is it can't really be talking about the building of a building because why would we spend so much time talking about the building of a building? And then there are so many interesting things about it, um, things which are contradictory in the context of the narrative, right? That um, things which are things which are inconsistent in the middle of the text, grammatical things to pick up, right? A striking phrase of So I'm hoping that I, that it was uh, useful to see that the gap between what uh, Hasidic interpretation and what it comes. Previously is not a is not a one of you know, radical break, but more I would try to argue is we're taking something that generally was part of the process and saying this is 
what we're going to focus on, we're going to make everything about that as opposed to this is just one of the things we're going to uh, focus on. Okay, I didn't do the end of that as coherently as I would have liked, but... Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.